welcome to episode 331 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here Andrew with Swafford. Michael O'Malley. In today's episode, we'll talk about movies that we saw this week, and in part two, we will conclude our world animation series with 2018, I guess, like, you know, somewhat 2020s, The Wolf House. We're really, <laughs> uh, really dipping into uh, multiple, multiple years with these last two entries, but it's fine. Whatever. <laughs> Who cares? Well, I Ta- think... You know. um. The uh, the Chinese film that we watched was also released in multiple years, so it's just that's 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 the that's the magic of animation is it's just years don't matter. Um, Timeless. <laughs> that's how we're gonna take we're we're going out of t- we're going out of twenty twenty with a series of movies where the years don't matter. It's just all jumbled. Um. All right. Well, let's jump into. Uh, Actually, real quick, we have a uh, we have a new review up on Cinematary. We're going to talk about yeah. this movie a little bit in part one, but Logan Kinney writing about Mank, the new David Fincher film uh, on Cinematary.com. We also got Spree, another 2020 release, and Hillbilly Elegy, which if you've not read the Hillbilly Elegy review, I still highly recommend it. I thought it was really good. It um, is the only review that has a thumbnail that is just a meme because uh, one of our writers made a meme that was so good I could not pass it up i'm gonna create a meme that is so good i couldn't pass it up. <laughs> that's correct um all right well let's go ju- ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week uh michael i'm gonna kick it off with you because i guess we can start it with mank since i teased it already let's do yeah. it let's, ta- let's start with start give the with people the, what they want give them the let's mank talk about some mank let's make it out yeah um so zach i know you talked about this movie a little bit um a couple weeks ago so i'll just give like a kind of brief reminder to dedicated listeners who may not remember from a couple weeks ago but um i don't think i i don't think i ever said the plot oh, did you not? okay <laughs> so it's about mank what more do you need yeah. it's about mank maybe like the most unpleasant nickname i've ever heard uh which is the nickname for <laughs> that's true for herman mankiewicz uh the like famous screenwriter who screen wrote many films but significant to this one is the contested screenwriter of um, Citizen Kane, like he and Orson Welles both have credit and there's kind of like a historical, like historian battle over who actually wrote it. But according to this movie, he was the sole author. Um, And this is a movie about him writing Citizen Kane. um, And that's kind of the frame device. um, And the rest of the movie is him like flashing back Citizen Kane style to like all the moments in his life that kind of led up to where he is at the beginning of the movie, which is that, He's like a washed out alcoholic with a broken leg and who's like holed up in um, a desert somewhere in a cabin being forced to write this screenplay with Orson, not with Orson Welles, but for Orson Welles. Um, Wait, and, can I ask a question? Yes. I know I know. part of this movie involves Mank giving an Oscar speech. That's the very Did, end, is yeah. the movie Is the movie constructed around... Mank needing to think about his entire life before he goes out on stage and gives his Oscar speech. It's no, no. Um, it is about <laughs> Mank needs to think about um, the ten years leading up to him writing the Citizen Kane screenplay. Um, so, th- but there is an element of like we start in the basically near the very end of the movie, um, and then he thinks about part of his life. But it's not like a cradle to grave biopic um, right i'm not even 100 percent sure it's a mank biopic to begin with like it is really about two things like plot wise like one is the writing of citizen kane um 
and there's like you know a good chunk of the movie that's dedicated to him in the um, in the cabin. Um, hold away. Uh, he's you know uh, you know kind of a debilitated alcoholic at this point, and so like he's also going through a little bit of withdrawal slash scheming to get more alcohol, which the movie doesn't. I don't know. Like the movie seems to have a mixed relationship with uh, the dude's alcoholism. Like it seems like it's his kryptonite and his superpower or something. I don't know. He needs to be drunk to write Citizen Kane. Is basically it. Um, but uh, then the other part of the movie is. Um, like at, at the point that he's writing Citizen Kane, he's kind of like been cast out of the studio system um, because, as we learn in the other part of the the, um, the movie that he keeps flashing back to, um, he basically had a falling out with um, uh, uh, Louis B. Meyer um, of like MGM, of course, um, and this falling out had to do with him just kind of not behaving himself as a studio cog, like. He didn't want to support the political candidates that the studio wanted him to, which in this case would be not... Uh, uh, Mankiewicz wants to support Upton Sinclair, the socialist um, guy running for um, governor of California, whereas uh, all the you know Hollywood executives are going after... You know, are, are banking on the Republican guy whose name escapes me at this moment. Um, and Let's sidebar real quick to say that Upton Sinclair is played by Bill Nye the Science. Yeah, and you know, this, yeah. that was great. I was a little bit disappointed because <laughs> I had heard a lot of jokes that he's basically being Bernie Sanders in this, and mm-hmm. I did not get that vibe at all. Like, I mean, obviously the talking points are similar in that, like, we got to redistribute wealth and, like, don't let corporations, and et cetera. He's a socialist. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's a socialist. So, like, in that respect, he's similar to Bernie Sanders. But I was looking for, like, mannerisms and stuff, and that didn't come across <laughs> at all. Uh, so, you see Bill Nye's Bernie impression? Yeah, I, I've yet to see that. Um, and he's, he's barely on screen. Like, you see him at a rally, and that's basically it. Um, but I've heard some people say, I guess Nathan specifically, if I'm remembering correctly, say that it's kind of um, a veiled, like, anti-Bernie movie? Oh, I wouldn't, Is that a thing? I wouldn't say that at all. Um, okay. I, I think that the politics of this movie don't quite fit with the Citizen Kane context. Um, for those people who don't know, like, Citizen Kane is kind of a thinly veiled uh, film about, like, William Randolph Hearst and uh, his relationship with um, his wife, uh, Marion Davies. Um, and... That is tied up in the the Upton Sinclair stuff because uh, Hearst kind of throws his weight behind uh, the Republican guy as well, um, and uh, you know so there's all sorts of stuff like that, and it, there's a lot of um, Amanda Seyfried plays um, Marion Davies, and she's quite good at that, and the movie is you know about that relationship too. But as far as like the the mayoral plot goes, or not mayoral, uh, the um, gubernatorial plot goes i don't know see okay so here's where we get like some of the problems with the movie like i don't know that that plot necessarily squares with what we see like uh with the writing of citizen kane like the movie kind of does this thing where it like seeds all the moments in his life that like get put into citizen kane um and so like i get that but as far as thematically goes like honestly like what it felt like to me is that like the the film is kind of depicting Hollywood as this like hopelessly regressive institution and like the people who don't um, the people who don't uh, you know support um, Upton Sinclair 
um, are like huge sellouts. Um, so I, I don't think it's anti-Bernie at all, like to the extent that it's about Bernie Sanders anyway. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I do think the politics are like confused. Like it's not clear because a lot of things in this movie aren't clear because it's like just as long, it's like two and a half hours and it has so much stuff going on in it that I don't think it all matches up. But to be honest, like I found the stuff with the, um, with the governor election to be kind of captivating. Um, and like, there's all this sort of stuff about like how, like the, like Hollywood, this is like a pseudo fabricated incident, but it reflects like real things that happened. Um, there's like, they, they get people to make like fake documentary, like newsreels that are anti Upton Sinclair. Um, and one of the guys who directs that uh, fake newsreel is actually like an Upton Sinclair supporter who just is kind of like, coerced into doing it because he really wants to like you know be a director in Hollywood um and like there's there's like all sorts of stuff like that that's kind of like really interesting about like it, it feels like an anti-nostalgia movie and like in some ways it's a very nostalgic movie because there's all these like allusions to like old Hollywood stuff and that's like kind of fun if you're interested in that and the movie is filmed in black and white and it tries to look like a like halfway tries like unsuccessfully I think it tries to look like <laughs> um an old Hollywood movie because it's like digital photography and it doesn't it doesn't look like an old, it's widescreen. So I don't know, the, the illusion's unconvincing, but it's like in some ways trying to be nostalgic, but in other ways it's really trying to show like just how craven and like uh, soul destroying like the Hollywood studio system was, which like honestly like tracks with like kind of the general like David Fincher ethos of like misanthropy. Um, so I don't know, like I, I just don't think it fits together. Like I, I got through this movie and I enjoyed most of the moments individually, um, but I, I think it doesn't quite hang together. Um, so I know that Zach, you were mostly negative on it, and I'm sounding pretty negative. I enjoyed myself watching this, um, but I think that like upon like if you, it's one of those movies where you can kind of have enjoy the surface pleasures and like think about like the cool like little bits in the movie and the things that could have made the movie better, and that's kind of fun. But, like, as far as, like, some sort of grand, like, thesis or, or you know, when you try to look at the movie as an as a entire work, it kind of, like, you know, falls apart a little bit. Um, Zach, I... Well, I think... Uh, no, I, I, I think that, like, all, all the stuff that you're describing, like, is the reason why I don't super like it. Because it's just, there's so much stuff that it's trying to cover. And you're just like, what... And you're at the end of the day, you're just like, what is this movie about? <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, you have kind of, you know, Gary, Gary Oldman hamming up this performance um, as Herman Mankiewicz um, and just, I mean, there's, there's like large swaths of the movie where he's just kind of, uh, you know, walking around like a peacock around old Hollywood. It's, it's one, so that you can kind of let him do that. And two, so that you can, you know, run into Joseph von Sternberg. Yeah, that was random. <laughs> and Louis B. Mayer. Yeah, and Louis B. Mayer and, like, just random random icons of uh, of old Hollywood. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's only kind of vaguely an old Hollywood movie. Um, so, and then you get into, like, the Citizen Kane stuff, and you have, like, this just strange... Um, well, not really strange. It's kind of built with into a lot of um, you know, writing before whether it's the Pauline Kael essay or or just kind of people's feelings toward Orson Welles. But you just have like this whole caked in 
animosity toward Orson Welles and the in the creative process toward toward Citizen Kane. Okay, can I interrupt real quick to say <laughs> that like the guy playing Orson Welles is he's terrible. not very good. No. Like I think otherwise, this is like a really well acted movie, and like that's like a big part of why this movie is like fun to watch is that like most of the actors are like fun to watch. But the guy playing Orson Welles is just abjectly terrible. <laughs> it, like mimicking Orson Welles, but, but also it but maybe acted. that's the like maybe just judging with how David Fincher seems to feel about Orson Welles, maybe that's on purpose. <laughs> you know i don't know i mean maybe um, <laughs> it's, it's a wild thing to make your movie worse because you hate orson welles but yeah so then and then, and then you have the whole the whole political sphere that you're describing and I, you know i don't and i'm 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 not with nathan necessarily where it's like this thinly veiled anti-bernie movie it seems to me more and this i think kind of goes in line with comments made by david fincher like leading up to the release of this where it's just kind of it feels it you know it feels more like, hey, I'm going to make a weird statement about current culture that doesn't really land or feel necessary, but I'm going to make this statement regardless. But, you know, try to parallel it with, with history so that I can justify this statement by going, you know, we're looking at history and showing that we're repeating ourselves. And I'm like, no, I don't understand what any of this has to do with anything. Um, I don't know. It was just kind of a frustrating movie to me because it just felt like it was very much a vanity project. And I guess I just didn't go along with the vanity project. I think I would have been more into it as a vanity project if it had just picked one thing and stuck with it. Like, because the structure of it is meant to evoke Citizen Kane, which is like, you know, looking at little different parts of Kane's life and like doing this really broad historical survey. I think that's to this movie's detriment, like a ton. Um, I, for example, like the the, pol- the political subplot, I think could have been its own movie and an interesting movie if it had just delved into that and like done it with like the eye to historical detail that it treats like the Hollywood studios or whatever. Like it, it, I don't know, like it's an interesting plot to me about like that like Hollywood like manufactures consent like in, in politics. Like that's an interesting thing. And the movie it's is just only half-baked. like 25% about that. Like it, and also like, it could potentially be interesting, like a movie about this washed up screenwriter who like is paired with this young like prodigy that he resents because he's an outsider and stuff like that. You know, the writing of Citizen Kane. And like, like that's an interesting plot, but like the movie like is constantly cross-cutting that with all these other stuff too. And so if it had just like picked that to be about like, that could have been interesting. And like I said, I enjoyed the act of watching the movie but like, as far as like evaluating this movie and thinking, it's just one of those movies where it's so evident like how it could have been better. And like the biggest thing to say how it could have been better is just stick to a single plot. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where I'm kind of at at the end of the day. Is I like David Fincher, I like his stuff, but like with this in this case, if he would have <clears throat> if he would have picked one lane with this, like then it like maybe it could have made sense, but it just felt like he. You know, I get it. He's writing it from an old script from his dad. You know, I'm sure, you know, there's some, like, cats in the cradle shit going on. I don't know what his relationship was like. But, you know, it's just maybe you shouldn't have made this movie. That's my thing. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Mank, now on Netflix. And Logan's review is on Cinematary.com. I will say, like, so I've, I've read Logan's review and... Like, he makes a case that's much more positive than we are. So if you'd like yeah, to... Yeah, that's true. 
if you'd like to see like someone who has managed to pull out like a coherent thesis from this movie, like that's the review. Logan sees the messiness as the point, I think. Um, so if you are willing to extend that courtesy to the movie, that's the essay for you. There you go. Um, well, let's go to a movie that you're much more high on, uh, Michael, and that is Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh yeah. So I watched this, <laughs> uh, a few days ago. Um, and I know Andrew watched it not too long ago either, so I guess we can yeah. both talk about it. Um, I'll just go ahead for those people who like don't know. Um, Rocky Horror Picture Show is a 1975 movie um, based on a stage musical from a couple years earlier um, that stars uh, Susan Sarandon, Barry Boswick, uh, and no- most notably Tim Curry. Uh, and it's about Susan Strandon and Barry Boswick's characters who are named Brad and Janet um, going to, they're going to get married and they're driving. And I don't remember why they're driving. Honestly, it's not, it's not important. They're driving and their car breaks down. So they're like, and there's a storm. So they're forced to go into this mysterious castle that they say at the beginning is the Frankenstein castle, but the guy who runs the castle, his name is Frank Inverter. Um, so, yes. um, not that it matters, but like, I'm not sure what to call the castle. They're just trying to make sure the illusion is very clear. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, what it turns out is that like, this is a castle that is full of like people, um, who are just like having a, like a big ass like party and Tim Curry is the, uh, sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania who is like presiding over the whole thing who uh, to cap off the night has like used his Frankenstein or Frankenfurter um, powers to create a man for himself because he is like bisexual and just needs like this perfect specimen of a man and so like there's this like Frankenstein-esque plot to it as well but like this, none of this is important the important thing is that it's a movie <laughs> Uh, that is like a musical, like it's like a glam rock, like David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust style, like music musical. Um, that is like all about like taking these square, like Brad and Janet, who are like these buttoned up people who are gonna get married and whatever, and just like throwing everything, every like queer, like icon iconography at them in order to just like disintegrate their heterosexuality and just make them like the like just throw them into this melange (laughs) of like just raw sexual energy that has no um regard for gender or like boundary or anything like that um and it like honest you know one thought i had about the whole like brad and janet setup is that it's kind of like the good version of beetlejuice you know how beetlejuice opens with like uh, slander but (laughs) Okay, sure. But the same basic idea of like we have this young newlywed couple who basically dies at the beginning of the movie, dies to the world anyways, and kind of gets like taken into this strange, uh, uh, you know, world world of, I guess in this movie, like quote unquote deviants. And in, in that movie, like the world of the dead or whatever, who have a lot of similar like flamboyant energy about them. Yeah. This movie is just like off the wall. Like, so I watched yeah. it because, you know, it's, it's, you know, of course, most notorious for like kind of midnight movie screenings in which people go and like there's all these audience participation things and people like pantomime the film on stage and like 
stuff. Um, and it, so it's most famous for that. And so I was a little skeptical about watching it on my own for a long time, even though I'd been interested in it. But I finally just like got the DVD from the library and watched it during the day by myself, which is like not a great plan for, um, you know, watching like a film that's famous for like live events. But like, I was completely blown away by just how freaking like fun this movie is like from front to back. Like it is very funny. It's very like the music is great. Um, the performances, especially Tim Curry as this like central, like, uh, like, uh, I don't, I, he's an alien. Like that's, I guess that's not exactly a spoiler, but like he's an alien, like play acting. I was surprised. Oh. I didn't know that was the twist of this oh, okay. movie. Well, I had heard some of the songs before. Like I kind of knew some of this stuff already. So sorry for the spoilers, but, uh, <laughs> but like, you know, there's just, everybody is just like doing this, like vamping like camp performance that like is just like completely over the top and completely fun like it's it's like one of those like winky like haha we know that we're being silly and kind of like in poor taste there's like a narrator character too who like pauses the film at times and and comments on the thing that you're seeing so there's a great deal of of distance between you and what's right but it's like not like like a lot of movies that do that can be kind of irritating but like this isn't irritating at all it just feels like this like anarchic fun um that's everybody's kind of in on the joke right including us the audience like there's no contempt in it and they kind of like clearly love the things that they're making fun of as well like the opening scene i guess the opening credits are like just these lips uh on this black background singing a song about like science fiction films and it's like all the science fiction films that they make allusions to in the in the movie and it's clearly like a like an affectionate like ribbing um while also like kind of breaking down like the kind of traditional like gender or like uh you know nuclear family kind of things that those movies maybe sometimes upheld um i i thought it was super fun also meatloaf shows up uh which i wasn't ready for oh my god it's great Meatloaf's scene is perhaps the most ridiculous part of this very ridiculous movie where, you know, they're having this this long dance number about this uh, Frankenstein uh, um, hunk that, that Dr. Frankenfurter has created <laughs> to have sex with. And in the middle of, like, his long introduction, Meatloaf just... Uh, drives his motorcycle through a wall yeah. like you you've not seen meatloaf in the movie up to this point and he just like bursts through a wall like the fucking kool-aid man <laughs> and starts singing a long song and then he dies at the end of the song and then everybody just goes right back to doing what they were doing before <laughs> it's so incredible. one one like personal anecdote about this is i watch this and i like keep a blog that like i put all my letterbox reviews on and I my parents read my blog and my dad called me the other day like unprompted because he had read my blog and he's like I saw that you watch Rocky Horror Picture Show and like I loved that movie in college and I went to so many like you know late shows where uh, you know and I that was really surprising to me because my dad is very like like he's kind of like a brad a little bit um like a like a kind of <laughs> nerdy like dude um which is like fine like the, that's not like a negative Thing, but I was very surprised that my dad was enthusiastic about Rocky Horror Picture Show and enough to call me on the telephone about my review that he read. But anyway, one of the things he says about audience participation um, is that like there's a point later in the movie where Meatloaf is like referenced again, and the audience is supposed to shout at that point, "Meatloaf again? No!" And uh, <laughs> like, like there's a lot of like my dad was breaking down all the audience stuff, um, and it's all kind of like fun, corny stuff like that. Um, 
uh, and it, it sounds fun. But anyway, I just wanted to share that little bit that my dad shared about meatloaf. <laughs> One uh, final thing about this movie. Uh, I watched it with Jesse, and it was like a couple of, maybe a month or so after the whole cultural um, discourse about WAP happened. Um, and Jesse was asking, like, what if, if like, the, the conservative media sphere that exists today existed in 1975 when Rocky Horror Picture Show came out? Like, what would they say about this? Because this is, like, you know... I don't know if you could say as uh, like sexually provocative as WAP. It's definitely in the same ballpark and the same conversation. Um, but we're acting like, you know, their um, popular art has never been like super sexually transgressive before. When obviously things like this, you know, 50, almost 50 years ago now uh, were. Um, it's just I, w- I was shocked by just how like sexually... Um, I don't know, bodacious this movie was. I will say, like, I, it's obviously not the same thing, but, like, conservatives hated rock and roll in, like, the 50s, 60s, yeah, 70s yeah, yeah. because of what they considered it being, like, sexually deviant or whatever. And so, I mean, I guess that they probably just would have hated this and just seen this as another iteration of, like, you know, just the rock, like, perverting the, the children or whatever, I guess. Um, that would be my guess. But the movie is obviously lampooning that mindset too, like any any sort of mindset that would uh, keep you in a more traditional way of, of doing things or, or a, sitting in a sense of judgment towards uh, people who are a little bit more transgressive. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so super fun. I 100% recommend this, even though we're living through a pandemic and there's obviously, well, I hope there's no live shows. Um, and... It, it holds up uh, even without the the like you know community element yeah of it for sure yeah it's it's actually one that is a blind spot for me I've never seen Rocky Horror Picture it, it's mainly because I have I don't want to be a part of the live show thing so I'm gonna be like you and just watch it like at 3 p.m. on a Tuesday you would you would like the movie Zach I'm sh- I'm sure you would all right I I'm I'm sure I would I'm just gonna watch it at 3 p.m. on a Tuesday and not in a live <laughs> Hello, Cinematary listeners. This is Andrew Swafford with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we do not want your money, and we don't want to place ads in the show at this time. That's not why we do this. We do it because we enjoy each other's company and because we want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema. However, there are a few things you can do to help out the show that we would greatly appreciate. Firstly, leave us a review on iTunes, preferably a positive one, uh, because the algorithm gods tell us that reviews increase our podcast exposure. Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send an email to cinematary at yahoo.com so that we can hear from you guys for a change. Maybe you think I'm an idiot for not liking Singing in the Rain, or maybe you have a suggestion of a movie that you really want to hear our opinion on. Regardless, let us know your thoughts, and we'll read them out and respond to them on future episodes of Cinematary. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions we bring to you guys every week. So to recap, uh, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, and share with your friends and family. We would truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show.
and we're back with part two of episode 331 of Cinematary. In this part, we'll conclude our world animation series with 2018's The Wolf House, which is directed by Cristobal Leone and Joaquin Cochina. Uh, the story is about a young woman who takes refuge in a strange house in the woods after escaping from a German colony in southern Chile, which is what Google told me, but hell if I know that's what it was about to be honest (laughs) (laughs) Um, the director spent five years creating this 73 minute film in art institutions such as the Casa Mayad in uh, Mexico City the Buenos Aires Museum of Modern Art the Museo de Arte Contemporáneo uh, in Santiago and Media Arts Biniel of Chile in Santiago de Chile among other locations and it's my understanding that they like also like worked with like artists within these museums and then it premiered at Art Basel in um or Art Basel in uh, Miami. So it's kind of like it's very like influenced by like the modern art museum scene which I think we can get into just in terms of how it's kind of constructed. Um in 2018, they, uh, the directors told the New York Times that they did this in part because they knew the filmmaking process would be lengthy. They needed 12 shots for each second of footage, so they didn't want to create it all in solitude. Quote, the process of the filmmaking had a sculptural quality and a material quality. We wanted to be able to show that to the public as well. Uh, the film is based on a true story that begins in a German colony uh, reminiscent of a traditional Bavarian settlement known as Colonia de Gadad or Dignity Colony, uh, which a group of German immigrants set up uh, in southern Chile after World War II. Uh, In 1961, a former Nazi corporal, Paul Schaefer, uh, who had uh, been charged with sexually abusing boys at a German orphanage, became the colony's leader. During his nearly 40-year rule, he turned it into a horror camp where children were separated from their families and sexually abused, and adults were drugged and made to work in slave-like conditions under constant surveillance. The Chilean military dictator uh, Pinochet was not only aware of the colony and its leader, but also used it as a torture camp for uh, dissidents and political detainees from 1973 onward. Uh, And Leon on the story said... the. Funny how those Nazis are always doing that. They always make their way in. Uh, the director, Leon, uh, on the story, quote, the film is really inspired by some cases of people trying to escape the colony who were arrested by police and brought back. This very eccentric cult or religious sect became very powerful in Pinochet's time. The reason why they became so successful is still sort of a mystery. It's a national trauma that we need to talk about. It's still very current because we have a right-wing government in Chile today. It doesn't... Two, or 2020, uh, IndieWire said, The Wolf House reminds us that fairy tales are powerful because once upon a time we were all young enough to believe them. Uh, Variety said, Perhaps comparing it to a David Lynch film can come close to characterizing the experience. And The Hollywood Reporter said, The deeply uncanny pick makes for an unsettling viewing experience a creative tour de force whose endless fascinating visuals are deliberately seductive and repellent in equal measure. So in that case, let's talk a little bit about The Wolf House. Um, so I watched this, I had not seen it before, um, and I watched this at like 10.30 at night on a laptop, which is, which is, which is important. Be- very brave. Which is, very brave yeah, brave. which is very important because 
this is a very the sound design in this movie is haunting and so like having like headphones that was something that didn't come across to me at all i guess because i wasn't listening to it with headphones yeah so on, if you watch this movie now now that you mentioned if it. you watch this movie with headphones it becomes a whole different experience because like it has all of these just uh just just in, in ethereally creepy noise like you have these like stomach gurgling noises that take over you have just like stuff you can kind of are the noises meant to be mirroring something you're seeing on screen or are they just kind of non sequitur awful noises no it's i think it's supposed to uh, see my understanding was the kind of like the wolf character is like is is almost this like omnif like it's like he's just kind of outside of the realm of what we're watching on screen and so you just kind of you, right because you never see the you wolf, never see him there are talks about the wolf being outside but i think so that's what you're but hearing, yeah i think I, I think that's what you're hearing because you hear like you hear like this stomach gurgling noises you hear like uh like claws on this wooden floor like you can just hear stuff it it sounds like something's in your room as well it's it's it was terrifying um so high recommend it was it was it was pretty fun um it was terrifying <laughs> but it was pretty fun uh, how was uh how was sleeping directly after how did that slept go? like a baby <laughs> <laughs> i had zero issues sleeping last night which is strange um okay andrew what was what was your experience like with this well i watched it in the middle of the day because i was not quite so brave as you i mentioned at the end of the episode last week that this is a movie that's been on my radar all this year and uh, that I've, I've been telling myself i need to watch the movie I need to watch the movie it's one of the the 2020 movies that looks the most interesting to me but every time I like pull up the page to rent it, I see the picture and I'm just like, uh, I'm not right now. I can't take it. I'm not ready. Uh, because just looking at individual stills of this thing, it is, um, I don't know, like you can't, you can't imagine it being uh, like the, just the still images are so horrifying that like you can't imagine what terror is going to be evoked in you when you start to see it in motion. Um, I was a lot less scared by it than I thought I would be. Maybe because I wasn't listening with headphones. Maybe because I wasn't watching it at night. Uh, but also the movie is kind of like um, on that like extremely nightmare fuel wavelength at every single moment that it kind of um, levels out for me. Um, like it, it stops being shocking because you're looking at something horrifying and grotesque, like literally every second of the film. And so my brain just kind of started to normalize it <laughs> after a couple of minutes. And I was just kind of trying to track the oddity of the, the things that I was seeing move on screen. Um, and honestly, I got a little, um, sleepy by the end of the movie like there is kind of a hypnotic quality that this has to it especially because the story is so loose and abstract and symbolic uh, especially from an outsider's perspective who doesn't know like the full uh, political um, uh, resonances of, of all the things that are being uh, illustrated here um, it just kind of becomes this weird phantasmagoria um, so I don't, at this point, I don't really know how I feel about it. <laughs> I'm curious to get more into it with you guys. Um, Michael, how well, was it for you? Before, oh, yeah, go ahead. Before, I, before I, uh, we get into Michael's thoughts, I do want to say, I would, it, 
clearly like I would highly recommend going back and listening or, or watching it with like headphones on, like with some, like a nice pair of headphones on, because you do, you have to kind of get like that, 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 you know, that sensory experience to it because the, I was the same way. Like you kind of get lulled into the story, but then what keeps you on edge is just the sound because like the way the, because all, a lot of these characters are like represented in like these kind of paper mache like things and the way that like they kind of crunch into existence is terrifying it's it like just all of the, all of those little um nondescript odd sounds that kind of come from nowhere are what kind of haunt you because you they just they sound almost like they're coming from in the room with you like you can't really tell you can't pinpoint where they're coming from you just see this strange paper mache yeah. pig creature on the you ground. also lose your sense of space too uh, like it, it seems like the whole movie was shot inside one house right but um that the space of that house is very um nebulous uh and and malleable uh, because the animation is often done on the wall of one room, um, but on that wall, you're seeing characters walk through multiple hallways and multiple rooms. Um, and like there's even a scene where a character opens a book and the camera zooms in on the book and inside the book is another room and we're kind of like inside that space for a little while. And it's kind of unclear, at least in my memory, like when you leave that uh, that like literary space and go back into the wolf house proper. So the idea of like there being a wolf outside the walls of this house, like just outside at all times is... Uh, is kind of a strange prospect because you don't really know how close to the outside you are at any given moment. Uh, yeah, the reality of the film is super malleable, and it, yeah, I, spatially, it's hard to tell what's going on. Which, like, for me, like, I also got drowsy in this movie, but I also like was pretty unsettled as well. And I think maybe some of that has to do with like you're never quite sure like what the boundaries of what you're looking at are because, like you said, like you can be looking at a flat surface that suddenly gets drawn on and becomes like representative of a much larger space that you didn't realize you were supposed to be looking at at the moment. And like, that was like, I don't know, like it, it was, it was an unsettling movie, but I was also like just transfixed by the animation, which is like nothing I've ever seen before because, um, this particular style, um, is like yeah, like you guys mentioned, like going back and forth between these like three D paper mache objects um, when the characters kind of break out of the the paint the panels, I guess, um, into the three D space, and then also uh, flat animation. And the way that the flat animation is done is that um, there are not indiv individual frames um, like you would see in a traditional animated film, where each one is a separate drawing or or a separate um, object. Uh, you get where like a character is painted on a wall and in order for that character to move to the right they repaint the character on top of the existing character and then like paint another color over like where the character previously was and so you're you're seeing like the animation kind of superimposed over itself as like the environment eats the other like the previous versions of like the previous frames like it's really strange and interesting and I was like just like completely transfixed by it because it's on the one hand, like almost meta. Cause you see like the way that the animation, like there's, there's no, there's no, um, 
attempt to hide the artifice of like here are the things that we did to create this animation which is like super interesting um but also it, it makes these characters more uncanny as well and 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 strange like and they'll do like really interesting effects on this too like you'll have like a uh, uh, one of the paper mache characters will be like just moving along and then like paint or a color will just be splashed onto the paper mache character itself and the character will switch from being a, a 3D object to the character will be painted onto the paper mache and will like slide off of the paper mache object onto a yeah. wall or something. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, but the object is still sitting yeah, there. The object's still sitting there. It's just painted <laughs> over with like a kind of neutral yeah. color. And I, it, it's just like an amazingly malleable format that they chose to like do the animation in that I've like literally never seen this technique before and I just thought it was super incredibly cool to look at while also yielding some just like really unpleasant stuff like also characters will like melt at times like this like a thing that happens at multiple points is like a drawing will be there and then it will melt and sometimes it will melt onto like a 3D object and become a 3D object other times it'll just melt into like a puddle and get painted over and that was always like uncomfortable when i saw that like or whenever a 3d object is constructed um it's not like it just pops into existence you see it be constructed one piece at a time and and other moments in which you see uh 3d objects kind of morphing into other 3d objects like there's one scene where the protagonist maria and the two pig characters are laying on a sofa together and it's like the pigs are they they meld with the sofa um and and like then kind of come back to life as pigs and then they all kind of like turn into the sofa it's very uh a strange experience to watch as as is basically every frame of this well and throughout the film there's like to the extent that there is a plot the plot is that like this woman like has these two pigs and she like trains them to be like people and so like yeah kind of like animal farm and they become people kind of like animal farm (laughs) style they slowly turn into like people and that in itself is just kind of horrifying, not just because it's weird to see like like half animal, half people things, but also because of the animation style where you see the paper mache being like put on. It's like the characters' bodies get like deconstructed and like body horror-ish. And like I, I do think that the David Lynch comparison is apt if you've watched David Lynch's animation specifically. Like this does oh, yeah, feel yeah. like kind of like the what were they, like the rabbits or like some of his early animation that's like really grotesque stop motion and stuff like it feels like like the same relationship to the to like the human body in the sense of like it is a thing to like pull apart and like stretch and and just kind of like look at in like what you can do with animation to to peel back like whatever like layers you have on top and and it's super like just it's not like a fun movie and especially because the also like we've not talked about like the there's a framing device at the very beginning of the movie in which this is presented yeah, as it's presented as a f- documentary it's presented as a propaganda film right by the the chilean government to sh- to prove that the the like cult like concentration camp whatever it is is actually a good thing um and like so like this is supposed to be like a cautionary tale for why you shouldn't leave the compound. So yeah, the idea is that she gets exiled from the colony and goes and lives in the woods. But she runs away, and right? This... I, thought, I thought she runs away and tries well, to Well, isn't she get she gets punished because she lets a bunch of sheep loose or pigs loose, I forget. Uh-huh. Um 
And um, isn't the punishment that she has to be gone for like 10 days or 100 oh, days right. or something Yeah, she like gets that? isolated outside of and the And that's what it right. seems to me is like she found this space in the woods and there happened to be some pigs out there, despite, you know, uh, maybe the same pigs that she let loose, I don't know. Um, and she just like lives with them and goes crazy or gets hunted by a wolf or <laughs> starts to lose uh, her grip on reality and try to turn pigs into people. It's a little unclear to me, but I guess, I guess that's the, that's the idea, right? That living in the, the colony concentration camp, whatever you want to call it is better than living on your own in the wilderness. Um, well, I was going to say, I think that you're, you have to, at least I was viewing it like under the lens of like, she's processing this like through trauma and so like you have like because of that like that's why the kind of fairy tale conceit of the story works because it's it's you know it's just the the you know mode that fairy tales work in to to kind of make sense of these like really like this this feels much more in tune with like pure grim fairy tales than any other fairy tales that you're seeing like from uh you know mass pop culture at the moment and so you know it's just to me like all of this like kind of tearing down of of like self and like the the pig creatures and all like and just like the walls around her it's like this kind of like just this this process of trauma and like that's like like to your point that like that's that's what was terrifying is like there would be moments where like the 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 woman's face would just kind of break apart and decompose and then like be built back up in a different way and then like 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 black ooze would come out of the eyeballs and stuff oh i'm i'm scrubbing through the movie right now and i'm currently paused on the moment where like just blackness starts pouring out of every yeah. orifice of their and it, face oh my God. <laughs> and so like that's kind of the that's kind of the, the the mode that i you know i stopped trying to really understand like what plot beats we're following and more just go this woman like this woman is trying to process her trauma and like this is just how it's being manifested if i can go back to like the fairy tale element that you mentioned because like this is like kind of like fable like or fairy tale like andrew i know and i'm gonna i'm gonna forget like what it was that you were reading but you were telling me not too long ago that you were reading um either a book or an essay, I can't remember, about how, like, a lot of um, fairy tales that we're familiar with are were meant to reinforce, like, certain cultural values or reinforce conformity. And I think that that's interesting in the context of this being, like, the frame is that this is a propaganda film meant to uh, instill conformity in this, like, uh, you know, repressive regime. Um, and I'm also interested in the way that, like, Obviously, the, the filmmakers don't buy into that. Like, the, the propaganda thesis is not the thesis of the film. And, like, there's an element of, like, this movie becomes such a grotesque thing that it, like, sees, to, to whatever extent that, like, we as viewers could understand, like, what the, like, propaganda messages and then film that's abstract like this. It kind of, like, the horror of it, like, just, it, like, imbues everything so that like even at the end of the film in which she's like quote-unquote rescued like that in itself feels horrifying too just because the entire film uh feels horrifying and so like the propaganda ceases to work because the horror that it depicts is so all-encompassing that it like takes over like the message itself and um i don't know that was kind of a disconnected thought but it, it it reminded me of what you had mentioned that you had read 
The book, by the way, I also cited in my review of Gretel and Hansel earlier this year. Um, that book is called Fairy Tales and the Art of Subversion by Jack Zipes, um, fairy tale scholar um, and folklorist, I guess. Um, and specifically, he talks about how the, the initial waves of the fairy tales that we now know, after they were kind of collected from the oral tradition and written down, by by people in like salons in France um, were were kind of constructed specifically to like uphold like bourgeois values and to normalize um, like the the lifestyles and the and the the, the moral systems of the very rich um, and I you can kind of see that transplanted here onto the the idea of like well this is a fairy tale that's told by this obviously brutal regime in order to uh, make themselves appear preferable to the world outside. Um, her getting rescued at the end is something that I'm a little bit um, unclear on. Maybe it was just that I was kind of fading at this point in the movie, but um, there is a, a, a narrator voice um, that pops in and out of the movie at times. Um, and it's often like talking directly to Maria, like saying her name over and over in a really creepy way. Um, and the movie ends with this narrator kind of like addressing the audience, right? I, I'm I'm a little fuzzy on this, but does anybody remember um, what the like final note it's is? It's like here. Well, I mean, the, the final final note is like, don't we get a... Um... Right before the credits roll, don't we return really quickly to the, like the the music of the uh, like the propaganda frame. The music is probably there, and then we're back to like this kind of charcoal black flat animation too, like going through the woods. The last line is a question directed to the audience: "Do you want me to take care of you?" <laughs> question mark. Yeah. Um, so I guess it like. What I took away from that, I didn't remember that being the last line, but like I guess what I took away from it is like where it ends is like he talks to the audience and it's like, gosh, we've seen what happened to Maria when she disobeyed. Like, uh, you know, sure it would be terrible if that happened to you, kind of thing. Like, isn't th- that's what I I remember? Although I don't remember the specifics, like because the imagery is so abstract. But at that point, um. Is that is that kind of like isn't that kind of what happened? Yeah, I guess I guess so. And you're you're like looking at a gate at the end too. That's the last image. So I guess that's the gate of the colony that we're returning to. Um, yeah, um, Zach. After having done a lot of the research on the history here, um, do you have any thoughts about like the <laughs> the the historical um, allegory being being done with like Pinochet's regime and all that? Well, it seems to be, you know, to, kind of to the the whole point about um, the propaganda. I think it's just it's it's trying to kind of connect to you had, and that's that, and that's why I, I kind of talked about like the it being attached more to trauma because it's like it's like the whole story that we're in outside of the kind of propaganda conceit at the at the uh, that kind of bookends it. Um, is very much like kind of trying to process this very terrible um, event that like took place. And like I, I remember in the in the interview that these guys had in the New York Times, they, they make mention that um, I think there was a live action movie that like tried to 
dig into like the colony and like what was happening there and all the the tragedy there but i don't think it it did much because it kind of you know nobody i like i don't know to say like this is a bet a better watch than sitting there watching like children being sexually abused and people being tortured and stuff um because this is also like very harrowing and as we've kind of described like a very uh difficult watch to take in but it's I think I think the, 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 the interesting thing about it is that he I, I compare you know like the, the movies that we've watched so far, especially in this series, have been at least you know we talked uh, Michael about this in the, in the with the Monkey King, but like it real like that has like this kind of language back to uh, you know to early Disney movies and then we we talked about with with uh, you know with Norstein that you know it kind of has like this much more straightforward like kind of stop-motion effect to it um, and the son of the white mare while being um, unlike you know most that you most things that you've seen at least has kind of like this this base foundation in animation that it's pulling from and this is this one is interesting because it's like it's it's style and what it's pulling from is like these it's like these art installations and right like yeah. stuff that you're it doesn't seem to be pulling from cinema at all no it's not i will say um the the one um animator that this reminds me of is the work of um jan Svankmeyer. is that how you say his uh, name yes um, who I've seen nothing by. We talked about including um, his movie Alice in this series, but decided against yeah, it. Yeah, Alice. Alice isn't the one I'm specifically thinking of here, because um, that's it's not conventional stop motion in the sense of the imagery, but like the technique is kind of conventional stop motion. I'm thinking of he has a film called Dimensions of Dialogue, which is like a short, a short, um, it, which is like clay stop motion, and that has like a kind of similar approach to like how it does like the 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 approach to like bodies and that in which like there are these two heads that are like just kind of being manipulated uh the whole time and like this kind of the metaphor is like this is how people interact um via via language yeah i'm looking at a picture um, of it right now and it is giving me similar heebie-jeebies to the uh still photos of wolf house so yeah that, that seems to track <laughs> and, it's much more playful and fun than uh this one but it's got the same sort of like uh kind of morphing like ambivalence to like a rec recognizable human shapes and stuff. Um, but anyway, that that's the only like precedent that I would name in cinema. Otherwise, like, yeah, 100% it's like out of galleries and stuff. Yeah. But it's, but, but I think, I, but I think that's, that's what makes it kind of interesting and what is, has kind of drawn me into it is that, like it's approaching this less in like a cinematic fashion and more like like the way like I was describing it at the top with all of these kind of sensory effects to it like it feels like it's something that you're walking through that like you're inhabiting rather than the other ones which feel like much more traditional visual media that's just kind of in front of you and presenting something to you like this one see like this felt like much more interactive um and I think that that's that's like rather than I think to, to, to bring the point home, like rather than having like this live action version of the, the kind of, you know, biopic -y version of this of this story, this one kind of immerses you in this very interactive fairy tale 
that it may not seem clear necessarily at first like what it's trying to tell you but like that's it's it's more just kind of enveloping you in this in this very traumatic torturous world that uh you know is happening and that and like that just is kind of a different effect than you're probably used to with with most movies i will say that um getting a little bit more context about the historical um historical stuff running uh, underneath this movie makes it a little bit more comprehensible to me uh to the point where i would almost recommend people go read about that stuff and then watch the movie or if they're listening to this podcast we we haven't really spoiled it for you right like the the experience is is what it is uh you just have to have it for yourself um like even if you have not seen this movie, maybe after listening to the podcast would be a good time to, to go watch it. And like, you can kind of tap into the like traumatized um, feelings of, of uh, abject terror that the film is, is tapping into um, with all of that historical stuff kind of in the back of your mind, because not knowing about any of that, I felt like I was mostly looking at um, nonsense seems like a harsh mean word. I don't mean it that way, but, you know, images that did not compute to me. No, I mean, that's, and that's fair. Cause it, it is, it does just toss. There's just so much stuff happening and you're trying to like process it all. And like, like we've described, like the, the, the people are like being, are like decomposing in front of you. The wall is moving. Faces are appearing on the wall. Faces are moving on the wall. Like there are pig people with four legs crawling in the room, like spiders. Like it's just, if if we if we described son of the white mare last week as unlike anything we've seen like wolf house is like a different version of anything like we've ever any, ever seen yeah. like it's, it's, son of the white mare is like the intensely pleasurable version of that <laughs> where it's like uh just completely throwing all conventions to the wind in order to create just like this um this uh colorful and lively experience that is meant to kind of appeal to your lizard brain um, and this is doing the opposite. Like it is only going for disgust and, and abject horror, <laughs> right? I will say too, like with how abstract this film is, like I know we haven't talked a ton about like the different like media that like these films are made out of. Like we did a little bit with Norstein, but it's interesting to me that like, at least as far as I know, stop motion has a much more robust history of the avant-garde than um, like a drawn animation um, it's not that there's not an avant-garde in drawn animation, but like when I think of like avant-garde animated films, like there's a lot of stop motion that comes to mind, and this this film definitely has like one foot in that tradition um, as well. What are some of them? Well, I mean, Dimensions of Dialogue is one. Um, if we think of, um, oh gosh, darn it, um, uh, yeah, Jody Mack. Uh, thank you. Uh, that's exactly who I was thinking of. Um, there's that. There's, um, I mean, a lot of Czech animation and like Eastern European animation is like built around stop motion rather than uh, you know drawn stuff. Um, and so there's a pretty robust history of like uh, the avant-garde uh, specifically out of that that I'm thinking of um, as well. Um, go ahead. We've mostly talked about um, this movie being animated with paint and paper mache, but it's also worth mentioning that. This house is messy and just full of stuff, and they animate or animate over just about everything. 
Um, like one of the first things that happens in the film is you're looking at what is essentially a blank wall with stuff painted onto it. Um, and then some jackets just kind of like stop motion themselves into the frame. Like they, they kind of like just uh, are almost on a conveyor belt on the wall. Uh, and then they like hang themselves up on the wall and they stay there for pretty much the rest of the movie. Um, and the artists just like paint over them. And the, the things that are moving across the wall also have to move o- across these jackets that are just, like, now painted onto the wall. Um, and, like, the same goes for, you know, lots and lots of picture frames and furniture and just, like, junk that's left on the floor. Um, even just the house in and of itself is kind of scary uh, just because of how uh, disheveled uh, in, in kind of, like, an incomprehensible way it is. Uh, but the, the fact that they also like animate over all of this stuff uh, is is really impressive and scary in a very specific way. And I will say to the extent to which that there is any sense of like fun or play in this movie, it's that like the fact that like there's almost like the film sets like challenges for itself, like by by making these rules where like 2D animation can occur on a 3D object and the 3D objects kind of get painted over like it is not like fun in the and we can treat 2d spaces like 3d spaces too right like there's also a moment where the pigs are walking like on the wall in paint but then like they start to animate the pigs on the floor too as if the the pigs were just walking in the middle of the room and they're they're kind of like the the way that you're looking at them the the illustration of the pig is kind of like um on both surfaces at once to to give the impression of being a 3d object it is like yeah so like there's moments like that where it's like there is like a kind of there is a little bit of a sense of humor to like the technique in the sense of like it's just kind of like transparently like oh look what we can do this is this is kind of funny that these jackets are here the whole movie and like oh a character's walking along the wall so i guess they're gonna have to walk over the jackets like and I don't, it, it doesn't come across as like funny in the movie, but like if you kind of think about it, like there's a the fact that someone sat down and did that is kind of funny. One of the objects that is in the house for one scene of the movie is a Christmas tree. So obviously, Wolf House is a Christmas movie. Watch it with your family. That's that's <laughs> right. <laughs> it's also it's also the scene where. Uh, there are pig people and on four legs crawling yes. across the this room. Is when the, so the, is that the one where they it. bend over and you can see them from the back and there's like a little like paper mache? Yes. yes. Yeah, that, yes. that is like burned. <laughs> <laughs> That's an image that I will now forever yes. know of. So thank you, <laughs> Wolf House. Um, any final thoughts on it before we, we wrap up? I do want to say that like, I kind of, you know, to echo what you all were just saying, like there, I think that, I don't know if we've done a good job of like selling this to people. Um, it seems like we're just more like we're we're traumatized and yes. uh, it's terrifying. <laughs> but there is like it is it is a fascinating like I think especially but I feel like if you're probably getting this out of most of the series. But if if you have like an interest in animation, like it is a fascinating um, animated film because like I like it is because it's so indebted to like art installations, the way that like you're describing um, how stuff is just like taking over other objects. Like it's so fascinatingly constructed that if anything on that level, it's incredibly 
interesting to watch. Like just because it, stuff is constantly. How long happening. did you say it took them to make the movie? It took them five years. Five years. See, one thing that I was thinking about is like the emotional toll it would take to just like be working on this stuff day in and day out. So like actually be in that house <laughs> and be constructing these objects and painting these images on the wall. But now to know that that was their reality for five years, <laughs> that's like uh, there's the the anecdote about um, Jack Nance, um, the lead actor in Eraserhead, uh, David Lynch, like making him wear his hair like that for five years like that. But, you know, with with so much more added nightmare fuel. <laughs> yeah, I you know, I really liked it. I I know last week, Andrew, you alluded to like wondering if this would make your top. 10 of the year and it might make mine i gotta i have not tallied my list yet so i don't know like what's in the vying but like this is this is such a striking singular movie and i love animation i love animation that looks looks different and and like like nothing i've seen before and this is definitely that Uh, i'll have to think about how it compares to some other movies but like this is definitely like if i think about notable movies i've seen like that are new this is up there yes it is certainly notable it is one of the most unique movies i've seen this year i don't know if it'll make my top because i don't know if i ever want to watch it again (laughs) it is it is certainly an experience that's you know what a what a way to put it i don't know if it'll make my top because i don't think i ever (laughs) want to touch it ever again but uh it was something i might watch it again if someone asked me to and there, you know, everybody is. Everybody's clamoring at your door. To, Please, Michael, yeah, watch Wolf is, House with me. Yeah, yeah, we should. Yeah, email me, hit me up on my blog, whatever. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm there for like, you know, the whatever. When this is on Netflix or something, we could do that Netflix party. The Wolf House. That'll be your. Uh, that'll be like a summer project when you're like, hey, what do you guys want me to watch? And there's just like 20 people who say Wolf House again. There's a um. This we can end maybe on this note maybe there's a um a person I follow on Letterboxd who every month rewatches um the um David Lynch short What Did Jack Do um, What Why and, <laughs> and like no 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 and and each each write up is based on just a, a minute of the film so oh, like okay. I think he's going minute by like he's rewatching the film but every time just writing about something that happened that he noticed in like minute eight wait who is this can i follow them uh i can't i you know i have to go look i it's one of those things i've not paid attention to too um too carefully because he posts a lot of other things it's not exclusively what he is i don't remember his name off the top of my head but every time it occurs i I get a little chuckle out of it um but but you could do that with the wolf house um you certainly could five yeah for the next 60 months of your life What would what kind of changed person would I emerge as from that project? I mean, yeah, that this is kind of the way to imagine what it would be like to work in this film for five years, right? Can you imagine watching this movie every day for five years and what what toll that would take on your psyche? Like that with the added experience of like actually being there for hours and hours and hours. Uh, well, and the fact at, that that's actually time. part of their national history. I mean, none of us, I don't think, are children. Yeah. So. Uh, that's right. Like, so I also have to think about like your country's history with Nazism and child torture and stuff. That yeah, sounds like that sounds like an experience. For sure. Yeah, we you know luckily we live in America, so we we can 
shift our thoughts to other places. Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing yeah, we don't have troubling about American history at all. Or uh, child abuse or any of those things, so we're good. <sighs> Merry Christmas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll wrap up this episode of Cinematary. Well, did it wrap it wrapped up in some way um you can find <laughs> us on facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary on uh twitter and instagram at uh handle uh at cinematary and on uh letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary where we have all the movies that we talked about in this episode um oh you bastard you bastard as i'm trying to open up our patreon hmm? at the same time as i just kind of tread water in this uh, i'm gonna get to it i might just edit this out i'll, I'll edit it out I'll, I'll just figure out a way to get around all right thank you thank you to our patrons cam chad newsome christina daughtry harry eskin joe jordan maggie ron hayes the kittiest of kittens titus arthur tyler chandler and whitney rio ross thank you so much for your patronage um next week we'll be uh continuing our our, uh, or no, actually, we won't be continuing. We'll be uh, concluding the year. No, with we're, our, we're done. We'll be done with uh, with twenty twenty. We're gonna do our best of the year podcast. You know what? I have almost no predictions for what's gonna be on that list. I think I know what's gonna be number one. I have no idea what ten through nine are going to. Wolf House number two for us. Yeah, Wolf House number two. I've been uh, if you've been reading like critics list, it's been really interesting because there's so much. There's so little consensus. There's like 30 films that are all kind of floating around these lists, but there's not like a consensus like, you know, all the critics, you know, rank this one the highest or whatever. It's really fascinating. I think there is a consensus around Cinematary, but uh, yeah. again, I don't know what else is going to pop up there. Yeah. It, you know, it'll be an interesting one. So, uh, you know, check it out, guys. Um, until next week, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you then.